Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Today, uh, great to catch up with other people like Peter over here, and uh, it's uh, one of the, the joys of moving around and speaking in churches week by week. I, I keep running into people, uh, sometimes people that I married or are baptized or dedicated their children or whatever it might be, but it's just been a real joy. Uh, I've got to say that um, one of my uh, one of my worst nightmares, though, in the sort of thing that I do each Sunday, I tend to be in different churches, is, is I, I, I have this kind of lingering fear that one day I'm going to either turn up on the wrong day or at the wrong time, you know? Or, or worse still, sometimes I double book, um, and I, I, I've been known to do that on occasions, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to be here today, which is a really good thing. But it reminds me, in fact, um, right back when I started my ministry, which was down at Cleveland, uh, I one of the first weddings I took was to be held up in the city tabernacle. And uh, so we'd come up on the Thursday night, I think it was, and we did the wedding rehearsal, and everything went wonderfully well. And uh, the only problem was that when it got to the Saturday for the wedding, um, I was anxiously waiting for the groom and his attendants to arrive and get everything set up and ready. And he just didn't arrive. And then the next thing I got news that the bride had arrived... And I'm thinking, this is really awkward. Uh, how do you conduct a wedding without the groom? And so uh, I said, tell them to drive around the block. Well, I don't know how many times they drove around the block, but this guy was 45 minutes late for his own wedding. He'd gotten lost on the day of his wedding, couldn't find their way to the church. Uh, now, look, I've got to tell you, I mean, seriously, uh, on the day of a wedding, the groom is one bloke you can't do without. I mean, you got to have the guy there, you know. And fortunately, he did arrive. Uh, I, t- I was sweating. I, I mean, I was sweating literally uh, like you would not believe, thinking, man, what do I do if this guy doesn't come, you know. Um, but, you know, as we come back to our passage today, and we're finishing off uh, where we had started last week in, in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 15 now, we're into that, and you might want to have your Bibles or your devices open. But um, it strikes me that, as Pilate agreed to the, the execution of Jesus and the soldiers led him away, we read there in verse 16 that they led him into the place called the Praetorium, that he was one man they actually couldn't do without, but they didn't realise it. They didn't even realise who it was that they were dealing with. And so it goes on to say they put a purple robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him and they began to call out, Hail, King of the Jews. And they began to mock him and to ridicule him. And in fact, three times before this chapter is concluded, Jesus will be referred to as the King. In fact, you remember, won't you, how Pilate organises for a sign, a charge to be nailed above Jesus' head as he is crucified, this is the King of the Jews. But it was intended to be a mockery. In fact, a little later, as the mocking crowd came along and they saw Jesus hanging on the cross there, it says, they cried out, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They mocked him as a king. But what they didn't realize, he wasn't just the king of the Jews, he was the king of the universe. In fact, there was a a, a well-known prayer that Jews, even through to this very day, will recite. 
And it starts off like this, and it says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. King of the universe. And it seems to be a a hark back to Psalm 22, or rather 24, where it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The psalmist gives the answer, the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And what these people failed to realize at that moment was that this Jesus had come indeed to be our King. He'd come to be our King, albeit like so many, they would much prefer to submit themselves to other kings, to other rulers, the rulers of this world, or better still, they would rather submit to their own rule to become their own king, to rule their own lives. The truth is, Jesus came to be our king, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. You know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to to contemplate that God in Christ has done something for us which we could never have done for ourselves. And that is to draw us out of the clutches of Satan and sin, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to be our king, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. And we don't have to look too far to see the evidences of the kingdom of darkness at work in our world, do we? I mean, everywhere we turn, everywhere we look, we see the evidences of it. We live in a society which again and again seems to to ridicule the truth of God. It's a society that celebrates evil on so many on so many levels, and yet rejects the very truth of God, which is designed to set us free. Remember, Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we live in a society that is happily bound in its darkness. But then as Jesus is nailed to that cross, we read on further in verse 33, it says, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That is from midday through to three o'clock in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was going on? What was happening as this darkness descended, as Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality was, of course, that Jesus in that moment was bearing all of our sins. He was taking to himself my sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world was being laid upon him. The prophet Isaiah spoke about it um, years in advance Beautifully describing this event in Isaiah 53, it says, For he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we have been healed. You see, as Jesus was going to die upon the cross, he would take upon himself 
all of our sins. Peter says he bore our sins in his own body upon the tree, upon the cross. All of my sin, all of my sin. For those of you who are older, if you could think of the accumulated sin of your lifetime, weighed up and up and up and up and up and It's not just mine, it's yours, it's all of ours, was all laid upon Jesus. And so why the cry of Jesus in that moment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophet Habakkuk made this poignant statement in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. Oh God, you are too pure to look upon sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that as Jesus dies in our place, he became sin for us, the one who knew no sin. He actually took upon himself all of the ugliness, the grotesqueness, the weight, the burden, the darkness of my sin, of all of our sin. And so as Jesus hangs there upon the cross, he actually becomes our sacrifice. He actually dies in our place. As Peter would later say, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And you know, just as the Passover lamb right back in the book of Exodus was to be slain in the place of the firstborn of Israel so that they might be set free from their slavery, so too our Lord Jesus becomes in so many ways our Passover lamb. Remember John's words when he first sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, in one sense, becomes our Passover sacrifice. I love the way that Warren Wearsby actually draws a striking parallel between the ninth and tenth plagues that were brought upon Egypt and what was going on here at the cross. Remember the ninth plague? Before the the children of Israel were set free from their slavery, it was the plague of darkness. And it lasted for three long days. And at the end of that was going to come the plague of death where the Passover lamb would have to be slain in order for the people of Israel to be set free and for the death sentence to be passed over them. And in much the same way, we as be draws attention to the fact that for three long hours, Jesus hangs in the darkness upon the cross before ultimately the death sentence would come to the Lamb. And we read there in this passage that we've been looking at in verse 37 that finally Jesus breathed his last. What was going on? I mean, this, this was cosmic in scale, what was happening. In fact, in verse 38 it goes on to say, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Suddenly something goes on in the temple back inside the city. This massive curtain that stood in the temple, 
nine meters high, nine centimeters wide, the width of a hand span. This massive curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was suddenly torn apart, not by human hands, but by divine hands. From top to bottom, the thing was ripped apart. It must have been a most terrifying moment. But you see, back in the Old Testament, going right back to Exodus, when God gave to Moses the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, he instructed him to erect this huge curtain which would separate the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed to go in to that space excepting for the high priest, who could only go in but once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and he would go in behind the curtain and there he would offer sacrifice both for his own sin and for the sins of the people. But suddenly this curtain is torn asunder. In fact, Matthew goes on to tell us in Matthew 27 that at this time there was also an earthquake. The rocks began to split and I don't know if any of you have ever, ever been in an earthquake, but I understand from those that have, it is a terrifying experience. Back on the 22nd of September, we heard about the earthquake hitting Melbourne, didn't we? And people began to give some of their, their experiences and reports. They reported something of the rumble and then the sudden shaking and the, the vibration of everything around about them. And people rushed out into the streets screaming in terror because of what was happening. I don't know what it must have been like that day there in Jerusalem as this horrendous ripping sound takes place. The curtain is torn asunder. The earth begins to quake and there's a horrendous sense of fear. But again, what, what is all of this? What is going on? Well, it seems to me that God is making it abundantly clear that this Jesus is also becoming our great high priest. He is the one who is going to make it possible for people like you and I to actually boldly come before God, for people like you and I to actually go into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. We don't need a priest anymore. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Do you see what Peter's saying? We, we can actually have confidence to go in behind the curtain, to go into the very presence of God. Because one has already made the way open for us. He's been our champion, the one who's gone before. And in so many ways, he has become for us our great high priest. Just a few chapters earlier, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet, 
was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does it strike you as an extraordinary thing that you and I have the right, the privilege, to actually go directly into the very presence of God? I'm there to pour out our hearts to God, to seek His mercy and His grace, to help us in our time of need. We don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to go to any other human agency. We can come directly into the very presence of God. You see, Jesus died to become our great high priest. And he gives us the right of access into the very presence, the throne room of God himself. But you know, as we read on toward the end of chapter 15, Jesus dies and his body is taken down from the cross. And his body is laid in a tomb. But there's no way in the world this is the end of it all. This is not the end. It is far from the end. I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Remember back in chapter 9 and verse 31, Jesus had said to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, but after three days he will rise. Jesus had already given the assurance death would not be able to hold him. And so as we move into chapter 16, we discover that on the first day of the week, the women went out early in the morning out to the tomb. And our other gospel writers make it clear that they're going out to the tomb uh, with the intent that they want to, to add further spices to his decomposing body. And as they went, they mused amongst themselves as to who would actually roll the stone away so they could actually get access to the tomb. But then in verse 4 it says, When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. I can imagine. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. And these ladies had to be confronted by the reality that this Jesus was indeed their risen Lord. He had come to life again. Death could not hold him. Some of you might remember an old hymn that used to say, I serve a risen Saviour. He's in the world today. Any, any of you remember that one? Okay, you do. This is good. All right. Okay, I'm not the only old one here. All right. Uh, sorry. No, no, I got that wrong, didn't I? But, you know, it used to go, I serve a risen Saviour. He's in the world today. He walks with me. He talks with me. A long life's narrow way. And then it went on to say, you ask me how I know he lives? Well, he lives within my heart. I, I know this for myself. This is my own experience of the resurrected Jesus. But I want to say to you, for as important as that existential witness is, that Jesus is alive. I know the reality of Jesus in my life. We know that he is alive because the Word of God has declared it to be so. He has been raised to life again. In fact, years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians, 
And he would simply say to them, look, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still dead in your sins. If Christ hadn't been risen, Paul says, you know what? you got nothing. You are without hope in this world or for the world to come. You see, Jesus is the man you cannot do without. You have no hope apart from a risen Saviour. There is nothing that this gospel has for you if Jesus did not die for your sin, if he was not your sacrifice, but if he had not been raised to life again as your risen Lord, you still have got nothing. But he is. And indeed, he is the man that you cannot, you cannot do without. But then there's a lovely little extra phrase that comes there in verse 7, where the the angel says to these women, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, I love the way that so often the gospel writers just include little snippets that actually speak so powerfully to us. You see, this risen Lord, this risen Saviour, is the one who actually goes ahead of his disciples. Do you understand that when when you were called to become a follower of Jesus, it wasn't just so that you could pray a prayer of repentance so that your sin could be forgiven, you could get your ticket to heaven, get your QR code that'll get you through the gates. It was not that. It was so that you might then learn what it is to follow him in the here and now to follow him in the day-to-day stuff of life, today to continue to follow after him. And he promises that he will always go before us. In John's Gospel, Jesus says it so beautifully when he talks about his people being his sheep, but he says as he puts forth his sheep, he actually goes before them. Do we understand that? The Christian life is about following Jesus day by day by day in the everyday stuff of life. And so here's the question. Have we been prepared to own him as our king? Not only in title, but in reality. Have we been prepared to surrender our lives to his authority as our great king? that he can call the shots on absolutely everything to do with my life? Have we been prepared to honour him as our great high priest? Have we accepted him as our sacrifice? Have we accepted him as our sacrifice, the only one who could actually pay the price to cover all of my sin? Or in fact, are we still desperately trying to prove to God that we're good enough for God's grace and his mercy. We're actually trying to work this Christian thing out by proving to God that we've got it. And you know, as I look back on my own journey, I think it took till I was about 17 or 18 before I finally got it, that the Christian life wasn't about me desperately trying to prove to God that I got it. That I'd kind of reached a benchmark that God would say, yep, Pete, you're okay. See, I needed, I needed to get to the point where I recognised that Jesus was 
the only sacrifice that would make me acceptable before God. Have we honoured him as our great high priest? Have we been prepared to worship him as our risen Lord? You know, the biblical concept of worship is not just about our words or our posture. The biblical concept of worship is about the surrender of our lives. That's what worship looks like in the Bible, where I surrender myself entirely to God. Because, you know, sometimes it seems to me that there are some people who will happily want to accept Jesus as their sacrifice. They'll happily accept Jesus as their sacrifice so that they can be assured that their sins are forgiven and they've got a place in heaven but they're not so sure that they want to surrender their lives to his kingly authority. They're not sure they want him to rule over everything in their lives. But as I read through the Gospels, it seems to me that when we accept Jesus, we either accept him for all that he is or we do not accept him at all. And the fact is, this Jesus, this Jesus that we've been talking about for weeks now, is, is none other than the king of the universe, the one who has the right to rule over my life and over yours. He is the one who is our perfect sacrifice, without which we would have no hope of ever being made right before God. He is the great high priest who's given me the right of access to come boldly into the very presence of God and to call him Father. And he is the one who is my, my risen Lord the one that I'm called upon to worship, not just here of a Sunday, but in the everyday stuff of life, day in and day out. My question is, are we prepared to embrace him for all that he is? I want to encourage you today to recognize the greatness of who this living Jesus is and to happily and to gladly Surrender your life even afresh today to him who is the sovereign Lord of all. And to recognize that without him, you and I, we've got nothing. He is, without a doubt, the man you cannot do without. But he came and freely gave of himself so that you and I might know what it is to truly live. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.